Welcome to Clued in Mystery. I'm Sarah. And I'm Brooke. And we both love mystery. Hi, Brooke. Hi, Sarah. We have such a special day today. I know. I am so excited. Today, we are interviewing Eve Lazarus. So I will begin by reading Eve's bio and introduce all of you to her. Eve Lazarus is a reporter and author, and she hosts and produces the Cold Case Canada True Crime Podcast. About 20 years ago, a series of events led to her first book, At Home with History, and the idea that a house has a social history and comes alive through the people who lived inside its walls. Sensational Victoria and Sensational Vancouver continued the theme, adding stories about bootleggers and brothels, corrupt cops, and murder. By the time she wrote Cold Case Vancouver, Eve realized that she was writing historical true crime. Blood, Sweat, and Fear tells the story of Inspector J.F.C.B. Vance, Vancouver's first forensic investigator, and Murder by Milkshake tells the story of Esther Castanelli's arsenic death in 1965 by her husband, Renee, a CKNW radio personality. Her most recent book, Cold Case BC, The Stories Behind the Province's Most Intriguing Murder and Missing Person Cases, has been on the BC bestsellers list for the last 12 weeks, 10 of those at number one. Welcome, Eve. We're so honored to have you join us today. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so um, Eve, I'm very excited to be speaking to you because uh, I'm also in Vancouver and and have read many of your books, um, and so it, it's it'll be so great to have this conversation about true crime with you. So um, Brooke and I have talked a little bit about true crime on a previous episode, and one of the things that I wanted to hear from you was about how with fiction, an author has the freedom to invent, but with true crime, there's really no room for that invention. How do you tell a story when you don't have access to the people and you you need to focus on the facts? Good question. Um, Obviously, I don't have access to the victims, but I do have access to their friends and their family. And and that's um, even in cases that are 70 years old and that was really my first one, and it's probably the, the best way to explain that is to, to give you an example, if that's okay. Um, in my book, Cold Case Vancouver, it came out in 2015, and I wrote about Jenny Conroy. She was a 24-year-old North Vancouver war worker, and she was murdered in 1944. And I'd almost finished the book, and I got a call one day from the archivist at the North Vancouver Museum and the archives who so spent a lot of time down there, so I knew her quite well and she knew what I was doing. And, and she called me up and she said that they'd just come into the possession of this photo album and it had pictures of the Conroy family from around 1900 to up to the early 1940s. And inscribed in the album cover was the name Jenny Conroy. And Diane, the archivist, had done some research and she found out that Jenny had been murdered and her case was never solved. And, you know, I thought, oh, my God, you know, I've just finished this book too bad, I can't include it, blah, blah, So I wrote up a story on my blog and I put, you know, a couple of photos from the photo album and 
took a photo of Diane holding the album and, and just, you know, sent that out to the world. And that the next day, uh, I got this note from Jenny's niece. And she'd been born, you know, years after her aunt died. And it was kind of a family secret that she'd just, you know, pretty stumbled over. She'd seen a photo of this woman and asked her father who it was. And she said, you know, he told her it was her, her aunt that had been murdered and didn't really want to talk about it. And anyway, it, um, it turned out that Jenny was an unmarried mother and she'd given her baby up for adoption. And, you know, back in the 40s, this was, you know, quite a scandal. And when the, the press, uh, the police rather, had leaked this to the media and the newspaper reports at the time were just horrendous. You know, they basically blamed her for her own murder. And um, anyway, when Mary, the, her adopted daughter, had gone looking for her biological family, you know, back in, I guess, probably 25 years ago. And at that time, she'd done a bunch of research and she'd got hold of all her adoption records and, and things like that. And um, she'd been able to, to put together quite a story and connect with her family in Canada. She was in, oh, she was still about to live in New Zealand. And Debbie had put me in touch with her and it was so fascinating. You know, I called up my editor and I said, wow, such a great story. I really want you know to include this in the book, and and she said, well, you know, you've got a week, and I'm, I'm, you know, because most of these stories take months of writing and research, and in the end, um, Debbie and Mary and I kind of collaborated on this story, and it became the first chapter of my book, and I think probably the most powerful in there, having these voices um, that were there, and I was able to source all the original newspaper clippings. Um, I had the Inquisition after her death, which, you know, had a ton of information. And I got through a completely different source. I came across the crime scene photos, her autopsy photos. And at one point, I even had her hair and, and gravel from the crime scene spilling out of these little envelopes onto my desk. Um, it was quite um, intense. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Does that kind of answer your question? in a long, long roundabout way. Wow. That must have just been a almost surreal experience. Well, it was, and it got even really more bizarre um, because after I put the story together, I was starting to, to read the newspaper clippings about um, that the investigation in, or lack of what it was into a murder uh, but they brought West Vancouver. She died in West Vancouver, and uh, the police force, had, you know, were pretty decimated with the war. And they, you know, did a pretty lousy job. And they'd brought over Walter Mulligan, who was a detective with the Vancouver Police, and also this guy called John Vance, and he was the, the forensic investigator. And when I read this in the clipping, I thought, oh my god, we had forensics back in, you know, 1944. Um, that's really cool. So I went to the uh, Vancouver Police Museum and Archives and started to do a bit of research about him. Have you been to the building? I have. It's the a police museum. Yeah, it's it's a great. Um, it, it's one of my favorite places in Vancouver. Oh, it's <laughs> amazing. You know, it's kind of our best kept secret. It, it's so incredible. You know, it still, as you know, has the morgue still intact. It's still got the autopsy suite and. And downstairs, which is not open to the public, was actually Vance's lab. And he founded the building in 1932 to do his forensics. And, you know, it turned out this incredible story that he was one of the first um, 
forensic scientists in North America, and you know the first one connected to um, a police department. And then I got really obsessed with finding out more about Vance. I found his family, decided to do a book on him. And once I got to know some of the family, he died in 1964, right? So I got hold of some of his grandchildren that had met him and and knew him when they were children. And one of them told me about um, these boxes that she'd helped him pack up back in you know, early 1960s. And she said, oh, yeah, there were all these crime scene photos and all this you know, incredible information and you know, probably got thrown out decades ago. And I emailed everyone I knew from the Vance family and I said, look, can everyone just check their attics and you know, their, their basements and, and just see if any of this information you know, still exists? And uh, I got this call and they'd found this grandson who lived on Gabriola Island found seven boxes that were sealed. They'd been there in his garage for decades. And when we got them, we opened the first box. It was just like, you know, winning the lottery for a researcher. It was so incredible because it was all his material. It was his case notes, his diary. It was, oh, photos and um, just, just incredible information. And, uh, but we opened Janie, his granddaughter, and I opened the, the first box and the envelope, this tattered envelope, and it's marked Jenny Conroy, murdered 1944. My Jenny, right, <laughs> that I'd been researching. So I opened up, you know, the envelope and it, it turned out, you know, he obviously it was one of the um, cases that had really stuck with him for all these years and he'd taken it home with him when he'd retired and, you know, it's, and it's, obviously never sold it and sold it unfortunately but all the forensic samples were there and um, you know all these photos and some of the autopsy photos were just horrendous but um, it was just so incredible to, to get this information that is incredible <laughs> I'm just sitting here uh, gobsmacked at how amazing that experience must have been Eve and I I'm sitting here thinking, you know, as a fiction author, your this story would be such a great storyline. You were the detective as the as the uh, true crime author. You became a detective in putting this case together and meeting the people and gathering the clues. And it's just it's amazing and wonderful. What a fun experience you must have had. It really was. It was incredible, incredible working on that and, and incredible finding out about this guy that had been essentially lost to history. And even the police museum didn't have all that much information on him. And um, so they were just thrilled. I was able to have the family donate, they sort of act as a broker, and the family donated all that material to the police museum where it's, you know, been properly archived and, and you know, put away and they're planning an exhibit actually in the fall, which I'm really, really excited about. Oh, I'm definitely going to check that out. How do you, uh, when you're writing true crime, how do you avoid sensationalizing the crimes and remain sensitive to the families of the people who are involved in these events? And clearly you had an opportunity to, uh, it sounds like become quite uh, close with some of these, these family members. I work really, really closely with the families. And, you know, I get to know them quite well in, in some cases. And I'm always, I guess that's front of, front of mind for me when I'm writing something, knowing that they're going to read it. Um, I don't sensationalize the, the details. I think they're always 
you know, sensational enough as they are. But I don't shy away from them either. Um, I, I think people need to care about these cases. And I think by writing about them um, properly, not shying away from uncomfortable details, sort of helps them do that. Um, I also, you know, Journalism 101, you're always told, never show your source story before it's published. And, you know, I worked in newspapers for years and magazines and always held to that. But I changed that very quickly when I was writing books. Um, I'm happy to share the interviews with the sources. And in some cases, um, especially in one chapter in the book where a 14-year-old girl went missing, still hasn't been found since um, 1993, so over 30 years. And I worked very closely with her mother and her sister, and we went over draft after draft. And all I think it did was, well, it certainly made them feel better, but it also strengthened the story. It made sure I had all the facts correct. Uh, also spoke to the father, who'd never given an interview before in all this time. And he was a former RCMP officer. And so I had him on the record, and I spoke to the RCMP up in where she went missing, and they were quite candid with me, again, because I shared everything. And I did the same. I'm just doing a podcast, actually, about this case. It was Lindsay, Lindsay sorry, can't get it up. Uh, Lindsay Nichols, uh, she was a 14-year-old girl who went missing from Comox in 1993. And um, again, I've you know shared all the, the interview tapes with them as well. And so everyone's, you know, feeling quite comfortable. So I guess that's how I, I do it. I just try to always remember that they're reading these cases. And another podcast I'm working on, the case that was in the book, is um, Gloria Moody. And it's one of the Highway of Tears cases. And she was oh, brutally murdered in 1969 in, in Williams Lake while she was away on a weekend with her family. And she had a four-year-old and a three-year-old. And her four-year-old daughter now is obviously grown up with children of her own. And so I worked very closely with her. But this is something that just destroyed the family, um, as you can imagine. And so, yeah, I'm really, really sensitive to that and ran, you know, all the interviews by Vanessa. And, and fortunately, you know, she was quite happy to have them in. Because, again, it's important for me to – it's not my story. I'm telling someone else's story. And it's really important for me to have their voices in there telling their own story. Uh, so I, I do spend a lot of time with that. I, am, I imagine the work that you're doing, these stories really stay with you. Oh, yeah. True crime, uh, like many of the subgenres in the mystery space, is currently very popular. Uh, and that might mean that the same story is being told by many researchers if someone has previously covered an event that you're writing about, does that influence you or the, the way that you um, do your research or end up telling the story at the end? Typically, I write about people who haven't been covered very much at all. Um, they've just been forgotten. You know, their case happened decades ago and um, it's just been forgotten by everybody except, you know, their family and friends. And you know, the um, most recent case I covered was Lindsay Nichols in 1993. And, uh, you know, it goes right back to, to 1944, a 15-year-old girl who was murdered in Victoria. Um, so, again, you know, some of them are well-known, like the Babes in the Woods, I guess, would, would be probably the, the most, 
well-known one. And, and in fact, I'd written about that in Cold Case Vancouver in 2016. And at the time, you know, I've been obsessed by this case since, you know, God, the late 80s when I first came to Canada and went to the police museum and saw the exhibit. Um, I should back up because people may not be obsessed with this case as much as I am. Are you familiar with the Babes in the Woods? Uh, they're the, they're the uh, bodies that were in Stanley Park? Yeah, yeah. There were two little skeletons that were found in Stanley Park in, in 1953. And it's just, you know, become sort of mythology about, you know, Stanley Park being our kind of crown jewel, having these, you know, two little skeletons buried there that no one missed or reported missing. And the, the case was just absolutely intriguing over the years. And I nearly didn't write about it in Cold Case Vancouver because I thought, oh, everyone knows about this case. And when I went to, to look where it had been written about, there was barely anything done about it. And so I, I spent a huge amount of time researching that, going back to the early newspaper reports, uh, going to the police museum, who, you know, they had quite a bit of information. And at that time in the late 80s, and I'm not even sure I was aware of this at the time, but they had the actual skulls of the children on display in the case. And um, when I found out about that later, that really, you know, impacted me that that could happen. And they actually went on display at the P&E, you know, these actual children's skulls, which is just stunning to me. Anyway, I got completely obsessed um, with this story. It to- uh, told the story in Cold Case Vancouver, just um, talking to police that had worked on the case over the years. I talked to the coroner. In fact, we became quite good friends. Um, she's the identification specialist, and she's worked on the case for, I don't know, probably a decade trying to identify these kids. And so... You know, I spent a lot of time trying to also put it into the, the context of, you know, the history because the police have always thought that the mother had killed the, the children. And I found this as a mother quite horrific. And But when I went to the police museum and started going through annual reports from 1947, 1948, when they thought the children were killed, you know, I found three murder-suicides. You know, two where the, the mother had gassed herself and, her children and another one where the mother had thrown her two children over a bridge and then jumped off after them and times were really tough for women back then and really you know much worse for unmarried mothers you know there was no social welfare net and really poorly paid jobs in, in retail or domestic service were the only things that you know most women could get and, and that just didn't allow for women so you know, it became a, okay, I get this, the, the idea that a desperate single mother killed herself and her children um, kind of made a little more sense. And then just over, oh, I guess last February, yeah, it was last February, um, they actually got enough DNA to put into uh, the DNA databank in state. And they got a hit. And they actually found the family members, and uh, the kids were, were given their names back after you know nearly seventy years, which is just absolutely amazing, you know, through the magic of genetic genealogy, which is solving so many cases south of the border. And uh, lucky for me, you know, I, I'd 
found out through a couple of sources that they'd been identified that I did, couldn't get any more information out of anyone. Uh, they were keeping it very close to the vest. And then I just got a message from this young woman and she told me that um, the police had been to see her mother, um, that they told her mother that her uncles had been identified, they'd been murdered, they were the babes in the woods. Can you imagine getting that visit? And anyway, they never heard of the babes in the woods and they Googled them and came across my podcast that I'd done about them. And um, they actually told me the story. So I actually broke this story, which is definitely a highlight of my year last year. Uh, it doesn't happen very much when you're writing about history and true crime. Uh, you don't get to break many stories on cold cases. So, so this was quite exciting that uh, we found out who they were connected to and who they were. The murder's still unsolved, uh, but I think the important thing was that they were identified. How do you feel about fiction stories that are based on real events? I'm thinking about um, the series, I think it was last year, out about Elizabeth Holmes. So it was called The Dropout. And it was it was actually based on a true crime podcast that was that had the same name. Um, what's your take on fictionalizing a true event? Well, I've got to tell you, I haven't seen The Dropout, so I, I can't talk to that. And I, <laughs> it sounds bizarre, but I don't watch many um, documentaries or, or stories that are based, supposedly based on real events because it actually does upset me. And, <laughs> um, although I am a, a true crime podcast junkie, that you know, I don't tend to watch Dateline or true crime documentaries and things. And I've had um, actually one one of my books, Blood, Sweat, and Fear, that Inspector Vance has just been optioned for a TV series this week. And Another one, um, Murder by Milkshake, that you mentioned that in the introduction, the story about um, a radio personality who murdered his wife with arsenic milkshakes uh, so he could marry the you know, 20-something receptionist. Uh, it was optioned also for a TV and film a couple of years ago. And I think, you know, the exciting is, is, is and, oh, my God, it would just be incredible if they get made, or one of them does at least. Um, I'll probably hate it uh, because it will be based on my book. It won't be my book, it won't be, you know, a documentary. It's probably going to be like um, The Dropout, I guess, um, without seeing it. Uh, because, you know, with, with Murder by Milkshake, for instance, uh, they had an 11-year-old daughter when uh, named Janine and when her dad murdered a mum with arsenic. And Janine had actually approached me, weirdly enough, at my book launch, which we held at the Vancouver Police Museum. You know, so much of my stuff comes it's incredible. But Janine came to my book launch and we'd set up a cash bar in the autopsy suite. And I was sitting, having a glass of wine, talking to people, standing behind, you know, Esther Castellani, the, the woman that was murdered, crime, you know, true crime exhibit. And Janine came up and said, Oh, hi, I'm Janine Castellani. And I thought, Oh my God. <laughs> That's oh my incredible goodness. because I'd written a, a book. Story. This was before the, you know, long before the book came out. I wrote this blog, and you know, lucky for me, I, I made a mistake. Um, I'd said that Lolly, this was the the mistress, the receptionist, had a, a six year old daughter, and then I got this note and said, "Oh no, you're wrong. Um, Lolly had a son, and my husband Don, he's actually been looking for Janine for, for fifty years. Do you know where we could find her?" And I said, 
oh, no, 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 no. You know, I, I, I wish because I'd love to talk to her. It's an amazing story. And then like this happened about a year later when Janine found me at the, the book launch. And I, I remember saying to her, I said, oh, my God, do you know Don's been looking for you? And she just broke down. She said, oh, my God, I've been looking for him for nearly 50 years. And it turned out after her dad murdered a mother, um, her dad moved him and Janine in with the mistress and her son, if you can believe this. And months went by, he ended up getting convicted for capital murder and Janine stayed with the mistress and Don. So they grew up for several years as brother and sister. And then he he was in jail for murder. And um, I guess Wally met a new man and she dropped off Janine to another relative, like a you know stray dog. And she never saw Don again. So what was incredibly exciting for me is I actually brought them back together through this book and through writing about them. Um, but it was a very personal story, and I became – well, we are. We're very close friends now, Janine. She's a wonderful, wonderful woman, and she kind of buried all this for 50 years. And for her, this was very therapeutic, um, telling the story. And But it was very important to me that we tell it from Janine's point of view and we give her mother Esther back her voice uh, because much of the story has been told over the decades. And it was told about Rini Castellani, the father, with this very char- charismatic man. Uh, he was a broadcaster at CKW. He did stunts. He did these incredible stunts. And he becomes this larger-than-life psychopath. And, you know, I didn't want to shy away from that because that was a really interesting part. But I, I wanted also Janine and her mother to come forward. And I think that was successful in the book. And I just don't know how you would translate that into film. So a very long way of answering um, I have nothing against it, and I really hope they do make my books into a um, fictional true crime event, but I probably won't enjoy them. <laughs> wow. It, it sounds like you've had some really amazing interactions with people and opportunities to connect people with each other and, and for you to connect with people because of the work that you've been doing. Well, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, I've definitely met a lot of very, very interesting people. Yeah. And got to know a lot of, you know, the, the deceased. You know, I feel like, for instance, with Vance, I, I feel like I, I know him probably better than anybody uh, because of all the work and, and getting to know him, you know, through that research material that, you know, turned up in the, the garage. Um, because even he had his private diary from 1934 and it was the year when there were seven attacks on his life. Uh, for criminals that are afraid to go up against him in court. And he'd actually had a bomb sent through, the, which is you know now the police museum, but was you know, the coroner's court and the morgue back then. And it was actually sent through the police department to the morgue um, in the mail. Like, you know, if he'd shaken it too hard, it probably would have taken out most of the building. Uh, it was incredible. He had this photo of it, right? He had homemade bombs and... But he'd written all this in his diary about these attacks on his life. So I was able to, to use that, as, you know, in his voice, which is just magical because, you know, of course, I can't make, you know, it's not much fiction. I, I can't make up what he's thinking or what he's saying. But I was reading it and no one else had seen it because it had been locked up for, in a box for 70 years. And so that, that was truly incredible to me.
You know, one thing that Sarah and I talked about in our earlier episode um, was that sometimes as a listener or a consumer of this, you can feel maybe a little guilty because you're being entertained by someone's, you know, real life tragedy. But I love hearing this from you, Eve, to learn how much good comes out of, you know, uncovering these stories and sharing them with the world. Um, a lot of positive things have come from your from your work. Well, we haven't solved anything. I mean, and that would be the greatest thing if we found a missing person, or you know, if we solved a case through a tip. And because part of the, what what I'm doing, and it's intentional, is the cases. You know, the, the oldest case was 1993, so this was even two years before DNA came out on the scene. So, you know, when we're looking at cases in the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s even, um, a lot of the evidence wasn't treated very well. Uh, it was contaminated, it was lost, it was thrown out. So the DNA that could, you know, solve these cases through genetic genealogy, for example, isn't going to happen because the DNA is just not there. Uh, the only way these cases are going to be solved is from a tip you know, deathbed confession or something. And the only way that's going to happen is if we keep talking about them. And one of the things I did after Cold Case Vancouver came out in, in 2015, and, you know, again, I got to know with a lot of the families and it just didn't feel right to leave it there. Okay, I've told the story, but it's in a book, you know, so let's move on to, to something else. And it just didn't feel right. So I started up a Facebook page, um, Cold Case, Vancouver, which morphed into a group page called Cold Case Canada, which is still going really strongly. It's got, I think, 8,000 members or something at the moment, and, and the page has about 23,000 followers. And it's very active. And on the day that someone was murdered or they went missing, I'll put up a post with their photo, and I'll put up, you know, where to call if you have information. And um, I just really have connected with so many family and friends, and even law enforcement, retired detectives who often get in contact with me about a case that, you know, one of the ones that they couldn't let go that was never solved. And so, you know, I've managed to sort of build up a lot of contact through that. And a lot of those stories in Cold Case BC, my new book, came from that Facebook page, came from people that actually reached out to me. Um, so that's been really rewarding as well. And hopefully, you know, we have had some credible tips that, you know, have passed along to the police. Now, whether anything's happened with that, I don't know, uh, because, you know, police won't talk about unsolved murders ever, even if they're decades old and no one's looked at them or blown the dust off them, you know, in decades. And, and part of the problem with these really old cases, especially, you know, in urban areas, uh, sorry, rural areas uh, with RCMP detachments, is they haven't been digitised. So these cases are sitting in banker boxes in storage offices somewhere. and No one's taken them out to look at. The RCMP uh, are changed over probably every five years or so. They moved along somewhere else. And a new person comes to take over the file. And, you know, barely do they get a chance to look at current cases, let alone dive into cold cases. And so it becomes really frustrating for the family, particularly because they can't get any information at all. And, you know, we know that no one's working on them. So at least having them out there, having their story out there, hopefully makes people care and, and maybe prods, you know, might 
you know, fantasies that sort of prods police to take another look. And maybe there is DNA sitting in a box somewhere that they could test, but someone has to physically go look. So you mentioned that you don't um, watch a lot of uh, true crime, but you uh, listen to a lot of uh, true crime podcasts. Um, how do you know that uh, you're going to enjoy something when you when you start listening to it? <laughs> um, well, first thing, if it's a, a couple of hosts and they start on with five minutes of, of chit chat that has nothing to do with it, um, that's me out. Um, I, I can't listen to that. Uh, and if the host is having fun, you know, there's so many of these, you know, let's have some laughs with our true crime, and um, I kind of I can't think of some of the, the more well-known ones, but, you know, it's true crime comedy. Um, I, I just don't understand that. It's just beyond my comprehension how you can have fun with someone's murder or someone's missing child. Uh, so that's a complete turn-off for me. I'm not going to listen to anything that, you know, anyone that's not taking this seriously. Um, I also want to know that they've done some original research and, and hopefully done some interviews or at least connected with the family and friends to, to let them know what they're doing. And, and I don't believe most of these True Crime podcasts do that. It, it just doesn't sound like they do at all. Uh, it doesn't sound like they connect with law enforcement in many of these cases. And while, you know, unsolved, you know, as I was just babbling on about, the um, police won't talk to you about unsolved murders, retired detectives will. So if you do a bit of, you know, snooping around as as I do, um, you will turn up retired detectives. And, you know, if you're respectful and serious, they will talk to you. Uh, there are also a lot of, you know, information that you can get. Now, it costs money to, to get inquests from old cases, but you can get phenomenal information that, you know, it's just not out there. Uh, I'm not interested if someone's just telling me a story that's been ripped off, you know, newspaper database and, you know, talking about wild speculation. You know, I've heard some of my cases and I've stopped listening to other people doing them because it just drives me nuts. I think, you know, I'm screaming at them, no, that didn't happen. <laughs> That's not true. You know, you can't make this up. You're just making this stuff up. It's not what happens. And um, I guess the, the other thing with me, I'm not interested in the murderers. Um, I, I have done some cold cases because I do find it interesting to to follow the police investigation and uh, and just I think it gets a bit relentless when you don't hear any solved cases. You know, it makes it sound like the police never solved anything, which is completely not true. And so I like doing some solved cases just to show, go, walk through the police investigation because they will happily talk to me when they're solved. Um, so I can get a lot of great information that way. And I think that's really interesting. You know, a, a case after 40 years was solved, say, through a Mr. Big Sting or was solved through genetic genealogy or it was solved through a tip. I, th I think that's really fascinating. Um, but I, I'm not interested in the murder. And even with these solved cases, I, I really play them down. So I don't listen to podcasts about serial killers and stuff like that. I just I can't listen to them. And I, I guess I'm, I'm just not interested in them. But I am interested in, you know, well-done true crime podcasts that are really well-researched. And in the end, though, I want them wrapped up in a really riveting story, a riveting true story. And I don't think that that's difficult. I think, 
you know, while I'm writing nonfiction or true crime, um, and I'm obviously not making anything up, I'm quite a purist in, in that way, I do try to use all the tools of fiction, you know, to bring colour into a story. You know, I, I talk about the place or setting. I try to give the story suspense, you know, Murder by Milkshake. I want you turning the page like you would with a thriller. Um, you know, that that's my goal. And I want strong characters in them. Uh, but they're real people. But, you know, I do everything I can to develop, you know, their character as I tried to do with the Castellanis through Janine and their friends and other people that, that knew them. And, you know, with that, with his own materials and, and again, with people that knew him. Well, and and I, I think as a occasional consumer of, of true crime, I think um, that focus on the characters and the, and the, and the, the setting and, you know, you, you tend to provide um, some context in terms of, you know, what was, what was going on at the time. And, and um, yeah, I think I, I prefer that if that's, if that's what I'm going to be consuming. Well, I'll have you completely converted over to um, true crime soon. And so I think as a, as a final question from me, Eve, who do you look for, for, if anybody, uh, for inspiration in the genre? I don't. Um, you know, I, I, I've read books that I think are brilliant, like you know, True and Compote's In Cold Blood. I mean, that was kind of a groundbreaker for, for this genre. And it was a brilliant book, but it was also told, you know, from the murderer's point of view, which I don't love. And Joseph Womba wrote a brilliant book, The Blooding, which was the first um, police investigation using DNA. Um, there are other true crime writers like uh, Ed Starkins wrote uh, Who Killed Janet Smith, set in the, the 1920s in Vancouver. I think that's brilliant. Um, Stevie Cameron wrote about the Picton murders in detail, and she focused strongly on the victims and their families that were involved. So. You know, I thought she did a, a fantastic report. She's a terrific reporter as well uh, doing that. So so I guess, you know, in that sense, I, I really admire their stuff. I don't think I really get, in, you know, draw my own inspiration. I think my inspiration comes from actually doing the research and, and talking to the family and friends and, um, you know, the law enforcement and all of that. That's what inspires me. This has been so wonderful, Eve. I, I've just enjoyed hearing you talk about the behind the scenes of this so very much. It's I probably listen to more true crime than Sarah, <laughs> but I don't, um, I, I'm certainly not a, an, an expert or consider myself, um, you know, a true crime junkie, so to speak, but I just admire what you do so much. I think this this is just fascinating. Oh, well, thank you so much. You know, I'm, I'm thrilled that you're, you're interested. In- no, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, Eve, this has been such a pleasure. And listeners, I hope you enjoyed this little treat. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed being on it. Thank you. Brooke, that was such an amazing conversation with Eve. Oh, my goodness. I think I could talk to her all day long, Sarah. For any of you who want to learn more about Eve, please visit her website, evelazarus.com. 
And she's also got a couple of places on Facebook that listeners can visit. So there's the Cold Case BC Facebook page and Cold Case Canada Facebook group. So thank you everyone for joining us today for this very special episode of Clued in Mystery. I'm Brooke. And I'm Sarah. And we both love mystery. Clued in Mystery is produced by Brooke Peterson and Sarah M. Stephen. Music is by Shane Ivers at silvermansound.com. Visit us online at cluedinmystery.com or social media at cluedinmystery. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or telling your friends.